Grace and peace to you in Jesus' name, friends. Amen. We spent these last two weeks reading some parables that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 13. And what we heard today in our gospel reading were the final parables he speaks to the crowd that had gathered to hear from him that day. Two short, uh, punchy parables. And after delivering these, Jesus stops teaching for the day. These parables are his mic drop moment. And they're important. They really wrap up everything that he taught in those first two parables. They wrap up his teaching for the day. So let's recap just quickly the two parables that Jesus already told in Matthew chapter 13 that we looked at over the last two weeks. First, Jesus tells a parable which is often called the parable of the sower and the seeds. There's a farmer, he tells us, who goes out with a bag of seed, a satchel at his side, and he throws handfuls of seeds into his field. Some of the seed, inadvertently, falls on a path nearby, the hard ground of a path where it can't grow. Some of it falls among thorns or on hard, rocky soil where it can't flourish. But some of the seed that he throws, Jesus says, falls on good soil and it produces a harvest. That parable reminds us that the gospel seed doesn't always have the same effect. Sometimes people hear it and it does absolutely nothing to them. It just bounces off. That's the the seed on the hard path. Other times, people hear it and believe it. But even among those people, Christians, Jesus notes that from our perspective, some people seem to bear more abundant harvests of faith and love. But our perspective is not the important one. The important thing, Jesus says, that God does is the work of bringing people to faith through the gospel seed. The second parable also pictures seed being planted, but the idea changes. There's a farmer who's planting seeds in his field again, but when he goes to bed, an enemy comes at night, Jesus says, and plants seeds of a weed plant in the field. And months later, when the crop is growing in, the farmer notices what's happened. He sees these weeds. He comes to the conclusion that an enemy must have sown these in because they're so thickly scattered among his own good crop. But he decides what he's going to do is leave the weeds among the wheat until the harvest time. He's worried about the damage that could be done to the wheat by trying to remove the weeds. In that parable, the wheat, Jesus says, represents Christians. The weeds represent unbelievers. The harvest represents Judgment Day. When Jesus will come back and bring this present age, this world of sin and death, to an end, he'll remake our bodies, imperishable and glorious, just as his body has been since his resurrection. And he'll remake this world as our perfect home. I pointed out last week that there's a progression in those two parables. Jesus talks about the process of conversion, of being brought to faith, as he talks about in the first parable, the gospel being scattered, that seed being scattered, and it producing a crop. That's the first parable. The second parable, Jesus teaches what new believers, new converts, need to understand about the world they live in, that there are two kinds of people, believers, unbelievers, who will live together until the end. But these parables that we heard earlier in Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 to 35, these two parables make the same point. They both have the same topic in mind. They speak about humble beginnings. And another thing that makes these parables distinct from the earlier two is that Jesus doesn't explain them. Did you notice that? As we read the parables we read the last two weeks, we read the disciples' question to Jesus, what does this parable mean, and his point-by-point explanation of each parable. Here, though, Jesus gives no explanation for these two. And that's intentional. 
because unlike the first two parables, these shorter lessons can be implied in two different ways. Firstly, we see them as natural follow-ups to the earlier parables where Jesus talks about the preaching of the gospel. Secondly, though, we also see these as parables teaching us about who we are. Let's look at the first of those. Jesus is talking here about the preaching of the gospel. Quite simply, the point that Jesus wants us to understand here is that the gospel is not something very impressive. It's a mustard seed. It's yeast. The early Christian theologian Jerome, who lived about 1,700 years ago, said that at first glance, the gospel message barely makes sense. Jerome wrote this, At first view, the gospel doesn't even have the appearance of truth. It tells us that a man is God, that God was put to death, that God died a lowly death on the cross for good measure. It's for those reasons that the Apostle Paul called the gospel foolishness in our second reading. Who would believe that a carpenter turned itinerant preacher was God on earth? And that as God lived on earth, he would allow himself to be killed? Well, I guess you do. At least that's the only reason I can come up with to explain why you're here in a fairly unremarkable building too early on a Sunday morning. This message, this foolish, unimpressive, lowly message has done something to you. It's given you life. It's brought you comfort. It's allowed you to understand the world that we live in. That's the growth that Jesus depicts in his parable here. A mustard seed growing into a tree where wild birds rest. That's a symbol of your, your soul finding rest and comfort in the knowledge that God loves you. Or the yeast that works its way through dough. It's a picture of the way your faith works its way into your whole life, leading you to get up early on Sundays to hear this message again, leading you to tell other people about the reason for the hope that you have. You are the good soil Jesus spoke of, in which the Lord is bringing about a harvest. Doesn't that feel good to hear? It feels good when Jesus speaks of us as good soil and a good crop. So here's, again, the other way that we're going to understand today's parables. Just as the gospel preaching, the message itself, is something outwardly lowly and unimpressive and humble, we Christians are like mustard seeds in yeast. We are like the gospel message which we cling to, outwardly unimpressive, lowly, and humble. That's what Paul, the missionary apostle, wrote in our second reading, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose lowly and despised things so that no one may boast before him. Jesus compares us, his people in these parables, to insignificant, unimpressive things. A mustard seed, this tiny little seed. It's not actually the smallest seed in existence, to be clear. Many other smaller seeds exist, but the mustard seed was the the smallest seed that Palestinian Jews of Jesus' day would have regularly seen. Small as a mustard seed was a, a common figure of speech for them, just as we might say that something is the size of a dime to speak about its, its diminutive size. There are, sure, other coins smaller than dimes physically in other currencies, but a dime's size is readily recognizable to Americans as the smallest coin we use. The mustard plant growing from this seed, is also not a particularly large tree. Jesus points out here that it's the largest of the garden plants, and it does grow to a respectable height, 12 to 20 feet, but there are plenty of trees native to Israel which grow to far greater heights. 
That's because Jesus' point in the parable is not the end state of the tree, but its humble beginnings as a tiny seed. Likewise, the parable of the yeast points to simple, humble beginnings. Paul and Jesus want us to understand this as we read what we've read this morning. God wants us to remember where we started. This is how Jesus wraps up his teaching for the day. No one was to walk away from Jesus that day with a puffed up ego, patting themselves on the back for being better than anyone else. Jesus intended instead for them, he intended for us, to walk away thinking about who we are by nature. The yeast picture is particularly interesting. We haven't really talked about that one yet. Yeast in the Bible is generally a a symbol for sin and evil. The Israelites removed all yeast from their homes every year to symbolize fresh repentance, new starts. Even in the New Testament, Paul says that yeast, like sin, yeast is like sin in this. Sin works its way into our lives like yeast works its way in a dough. Apart from this parable, Jesus' only other references to yeast are the number of occasions when he warns his disciples, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. Watch out for their hypocritical false teachings because they'll work their way into your teachings. Listen to a Pharisee and become a Pharisee, Jesus warns. But here, yeast is the the positive agent in the story. It's the agent of desired transformation. Jesus picks yeast for his metaphor intentionally. It's an unexpected way to depict God's work because the people would have naturally connected yeast to evil. And as noted, Jesus himself uses that same symbol in other places. Here he's not negating the symbolism, right? He's not negating the idea that we should generally understand yeast in the Bible as a picture of evil. Not that there's anything wrong with yeast in itself. But yeast is generally a symbol of evil in the Bible, and so Jesus uses that symbol and inverts it and uses it as something positive because he wants to surprise here. He wants to make people think here. He wants to take them aback a little bit. Matthew comments on this and says that as Jesus did so, he was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Matthew quotes from Psalm 78 and says that Jesus used parables to utter things hidden since the creation of the world. There's a very important truth being expressed by this. Matthew wants us to understand that these two parables in particular make plain something that has been true since the creation of the world. And what's being made plain is this. God has always used lowly things. The quotation there from Psalm 78 references the creation of the world. The other ancient religions around the Israelites when Psalm 78 was written knew that, well, taught that in the beginning there was already existence, but the universe was filled with formless chaos and monsters. Then a hero god would vanquish the monsters and shape the world we know. The biblical story is so much less impressive. God just talked the universe into existence. There were no monster fights, just simple words. God took nothing and made everything. We move ahead in the Bible story and we find God choosing a family to become the nation through which he's going to bring about the Savior he promised after Adam and Eve fell into sin. Who does he pick? Looking out at the whole world as it existed at that time, who does he decide will be his chosen family? It's a childless 70-year-old and his 60-year-old wife, Abraham and Sarah. And God gives them this child when Abraham is 100 years old. He and Sarah have to wait, have to confront their own nothingness for 30 years. 
While that family grows, and a generation later, Abraham has twin grandsons. Which one will God choose to be the next step in fulfilling the Savior promise? The older one, Esau, grows up to be a strong young man. A hunter, an outdoorsman, masculine and rugged, like Gaston from Beauty and the Beast, but even hairier. God picks the younger twin. Jacob, a homebody, his mother's favorite. The Bible tells us that Jacob liked to cook and stay with the women among the tents. God chooses him to be the next patriarch in Jesus' line. When that family has become a great nation, they look for a king to lead them. The first one they find is Saul, this strong man who's taller than a head by all his peers, a mighty warrior. But God rejects Saul eventually, and he sends his prophet Samuel to a man named Jesse, who has eight sons. Seven of these are presented to Samuel, all fit and impressive young men, but God tells Samuel, it's none of these. They may all look outwardly impressive, but I don't care what they look like. Then Jesse brings the youngest one in from the field, the shepherd boy David. And God says this, here, he's the one. The one that Jesse didn't even bother, his own father didn't even bother to call to present to the prophet, is God's chosen one. A thousand years later, David's family brings forth that promised Savior, Jesus. And when God's promised Savior is born into this world, he's born in a barn. Stinking shepherds smelling from their flocks are his first worshippers, and when that baby grows up, he dies naked and bleeding as his clothes are gambled away, abandoned by his friends, and he says, hanging on his cross, it is finished. That's what finished looks like? That's what God's work looks like? Jesus drops the mic here. He's done teaching for the day. He wants people to walk away remembering... I am nothing but yeast, nothing but a mustard seed, because Jesus wants, the crowd wants us to walk away hearing this from him through these parables. God always chooses the lowly things. God chooses the nothings, the nobodies, to paraphrase Paul, and from nothing he makes everything. God chooses to work with absolutely nothing and promises that what we will one day see brought forth out of all those stories of humble beginnings, one day will be a multitude beyond number, drawn from every race and tribe, every nation and people of the earth, worshiping the Savior together. Take this away from Jesus' words today. God does not care how strong you are. God does not care how rich you are. God does not care how wise you are. He will always be stronger than you. He will always be richer than you. He will always be wiser than you. And not only will God always be stronger, richer, wiser than us, but we should be honest, there's always going to be someone else, a, a regular human like us, who's stronger, who's richer, who's wiser than us, no matter how high we climb on those particular totem poles. So don't worry about it. You don't need to find your value in those things. You can't find your value in those things. Instead, listen to what Jeremiah writes in our first reading. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong of their strength, or the rich of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know God. If you want to boast about something, boast about knowing that God always chooses the lowly things. Boast that you know how God works. Boast that because you are lowly and foolish and weak, 
You belong to him. You are lowly in the eyes of this world. You are foolish because you believe this gospel. You are too weak to be your own savior. But God exalts the lowly always. God's foolishness is always wiser than human wisdom. God's saving mercy puts all the strength of mankind to shame. And God has chosen you, lowly ones. Boast in him. Amen.